You don't clap for me when I read. <laughs> An aroma pleasing to the Lord. That's how the burnt offerings of God's people are described throughout the first three chapters of Leviticus. The priest shall burn all of it upon the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. When it comes to the burnt grain, though, I have to wonder about that. Let me explain. When I was 13 years old, my family moved into a new house. The houses in our neighborhood had, had large backyards and woods out behind them. My older brother and I quickly discovered that someone had built a fire pit way back away from the houses where all several of the yards came together. And one day while we were out playing with the other kids in the neighborhood, we decided that we needed to try out that fire pit. So we gathered up a whole bunch of cut grass from the yards around there, and we piled it into the pit, and we set it on fire. Kids, don't do this at home. I'm glad the kids have already left the room, because you don't want to, it was a stupid idea. Thankfully, the fire did not get out of control. But the stench that we created, it was something awful. A pleasing aroma, it was not, to God or anyone else. We stood in a circle around the fire to, to keep a close eye on it, to make sure that none of the burning grass flew out of the pit. We were completely enveloped in this awful smoke, the smell of it attaching itself to our clothing. After we put the fire out and went back home, we realized that the stink was going home with us. <laughs> Now, I had never smelled marijuana before, but I knew that it was sometimes called smoking grass. And my brother and I were absolutely covered with the smell of burnt grass. I was certain that our mom would come home and be convinced that, that we had been smoking grass, which I guess in a sense we were, but not like that. We opened up every window in the house. We turned on all the fans. We ran around the backyard to air out our clothes. The end of the story is pretty anticlimactic. Our mom came home before she even asked about the smell. We told her what we had done with the fire pit. She told us that's not safe, don't do it again, and that was it. <laughs> but to this day, whenever I read about burning the grain offering, I can't help but to think about that awful smell. Maybe that's why Leviticus talks about mixing in some olive oil and combining it with some incense. Maybe that's what makes it a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The grain offering is described in chapter 2. Chapters 1 and 3 of Leviticus talk about the burnt offering of an animal from the herd. Now that I get, especially if it smelled anything like driving past Longhorn Steakhouse. That is definitely a pleasing aroma unto Pastor Andy. But what constitutes a pleasing aroma unto the Lord? Well, I don't think we're supposed to take that expression too literally. It's not like God has a giant nose with olfactory glands that get his senses jumping. I take it rather to be symbolic of the fact that God is pleased by certain offerings. 
Specifically, God is pleased by offerings that are presented faithfully and in obedience to his commands. What was pleasing to God about the offerings described in Leviticus was not so much the way they smelled. If that were the case, God probably would have said, gather a bunch of flowers for me, maybe some scented candles. What was so sweet to God about the grain offering or the offering of a bowl without blemish or or the offering of a lamb is that these offerings were a real sacrifice. It cost the people something to make these offerings to God. It took something of value away from them that they could have otherwise used for themselves. And they gave these things of value over to God, willingly. Gladly, faithfully, they gave them over in a way that expressed their understanding that these things belonged to God. They were owed to God. They gave them over to show God's place of primacy in their lives. They presented a tenth of all that they had to say, we know, Lord, that you are more important than all of this. We know, Lord, that you are the source of all of this. We give a tenth of it back to you to demonstrate our trust, to prove our faith, to reveal your worthiness over all. That is what smelled so wonderful to God. Their faithfulness and the sacrifices they were willing to make to prove it. That is what God found so pleasing. Their demonstrations of his worthiness. Worthiness. That is what worship is about. The words worship and worthy share the same root, and for good reason. We worship the one who is worthy. We worship that which we believe to be worthy of our attention, worthy of our time, worthy of our commitments, worthy of our sacrifices. Indeed, our sacrifices are the primary means of worship. Throughout much of the Old Testament, worship was expressed by presenting the sacrifice at the altar. That's what worship was for them. That's what it meant. They didn't sit around in a comfortable room singing catchy songs or listening to a sermon. No, if you wanted to worship God, here's what you did. You gathered up a tenth of your grain the firstborn from your herd, the most perfect from your flock. You took them to the temple and you presented them to God on the altar. That was worship. And it cost you something. It cost you something. It showed that God is worthy. It proved that God comes first. A couple weeks ago when our DS, Jen Lucas, was here to preach, she and I were were sitting up here next to each other uh, on the chancel, and during the offering, she leaned over to me and she whispered, it's so good to see you passing the plates again. So many churches don't do that anymore. It's an act of worship, she said. That's the thing. The offering is an act of worship. In fact, throughout much of the Bible, the offering is the act of worship. It's the one part of the service that asks you to actually put something significant on the line to demonstrate God's place in your life. 
to make a sacrifice proportional to the blessings he has poured upon us. There are some other minor sacrifices that we make, I suppose. The sacrifice of your time to set aside a few hours of your busy week to gather the family together to head over to the church. Protecting that time, setting it aside for God, that's a bit of a sacrifice. Listening to the preacher drone on for 20 or 30 minutes, that's a sacrifice. (laughs) Weeks like this, when we have one combined worship service, those who like traditional worship put up with some contemporary music, and those who like contemporary worship put up with some traditional music, that might take some sacrifice. Those are all fairly minor sacrifices. They don't cost you a whole lot. But giving up a tenth of your bread, handing over the best of your flock, that is costly. And precisely because it is costly, it is the most truly authentic expression of worship. For who else is worthy to receive that from us. Back in the 80s and 90s, there was something in the American church called the worship wars. Do you remember the worship wars? If you were alive and active in the church at the time, you you probably experienced them to some extent, even if you didn't call it that. It was a time when contemporary praise music was becoming mainstream, and churches across the country were fighting battles within themselves as to what kind of worship they would offer there was really terrible antagonism between those who wanted traditional worship and those who wanted contemporary worship. And it's not just that they said, I prefer one over the other, it's that they argued, my style of worship is right and the other style is wrong. I don't know how hard hit this congregation was by those worship wars. I think that we are blessed that we have had both for a long time. There's nothing wrong with worshiping in different styles and acknowledging different lights. But it does become a problem when we don't take time to consider what kind of worship God likes. What form of worship is a pleasing aroma to the Lord? I'll give you a clue. The kind of worship God likes has nothing to do with whether there is a praise band up front or a chance of choir. It's not about whether we are led by a keyboard or an organ. God isn't concerned with whether we praise him with guitar and drums or handbells and chimes. The kind of worship God likes, worship that the Bible calls an aroma pleasing to the Lord, is when we offer a sacrifice demonstrating God's place in our lives, when we know that our worship is all about God and not about us. We often think of worship as an emotional experience that's designed for us. We want it to fit our tastes, to suit our needs. It's supposed to fill us. How many of us have ever said, that worship service didn't feed me? I know I've said it. Read the book of Leviticus. Worship isn't intended to feed us. It's supposed to feed God. It's not designed to please us. It's designed to please God. We are not consumers of worship. God is the audience of our praise. That's not to say we don't get something from it. 
If we are truly directing our praise to God, if we are faithfully offering him all that he asks of us, then we will be filled with his spirit. Then we will receive all the blessings we need to carry us through the week. But don't, don't come to worship asking, God, what are you going to give me this week? Come to worship saying, God, I'm bringing you everything I can. And I pray it will be enough because you alone are worthy. You alone are worthy. The passage from Leviticus shows us that there is some practicality to the offering beyond just praising God. After burning a memorial portion of the grain on the altar, the Bible says, the rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons were the priests. They were the ones appointed to minister at the temple, to perform the sacrifices, burn the offerings. That was not only their privilege, it was also their only occupation. The descendants of Aaron were not supposed to hold any other job or or make a living in any other way. They were set apart from worldly affairs to minister to God and God's people at the temple. So a good portion of the offerings that people brought to the temple were used to feed the priests. A portion of it, whether grain or meat, a portion of it they burnt on the altar, signifying that it was going up to God. Of the rest of it, the priests were fed. It was a very practical system. That's the way God set it up. However, feeding the priests was not the point of the offering. The point of the offering was honoring God, doing what God asked, giving what God demanded. That is what worship is, doing what God asks to show that he is worthy of our obedience and praise. That is what the offering is, giving what God asks to show that he is worthy of our obedience and praise. They are one and the same. This is what so many Christians don't understand about giving to the church. You don't give to the church in order to keep the lights on and the heat running and pay down the mortgage and support the staff salaries. Your offering does go toward all those things, and that's important. That's the way God set it up, just as the grain and the animal sacrifices were used to feed the priests. But that's not the point of your offering. The point of your offering is not to pay the bills. The point of your offering is to worship and honor Almighty God. And you do not do God any honor. You do not show God's true worth by asking, what's the least amount we can give and keep the church running? (laughs) That is not a pleasing odor unto the Lord. In fact, that kind of attitude just downright stinks to high heaven. But wait a minute, you might ask. Didn't Jesus do away with sacrifices? Most of what I've been talking about so far is is based on Old Testament law. What about New Testament grace? The fact that Jesus has already paid it all. It is true that the sacrifice of Jesus does away with the sacrificial temple system. Christ is 
the sacrifice of atonement once and for all. There is no more need to sacrifice an animal on the altar to purchase our redemption. And thank God for that because I couldn't do it. You'd have to get yourself another pastor. I'm not dealing with all that blood. (laughs) But the New Testament does not do away with the idea of sacrifice. It just talks about it in a new way. The New Testament reading from Romans commands us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Again, there is the connection between the sacrifice and worship. You cannot have true worship without sacrifice. But here in the New Testament, what is asked of the Christian is not, a limited, not, not limited to a specific amount of resources. It is the sacrifice of ourselves, the offering of our very lives. That doesn't mean we kill ourselves for God. It does mean we die to ourselves for God so that we might live unto the Lord That's what it means to be a living sacrifice, that we give it all to God, not just 10%, everything. All that we have, all that we are, it's all his. We sacrifice it all, we surrender it all to him, every bit. We say, here I am, Lord, do with me as you please. Use me and everything I have as you see fit. My life is yours, God. Throughout the New Testament, whenever Jesus declared, you have heard it was said, but I say to you, he always raised the standard. You have heard it was said, do not murder, but I say to you, if you have anger in your heart, you are guilty of murder. You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you lust after another in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. Jesus never said the old no longer applies. He raised the old to a whole new level. Apply that to the tithe. The tithe, 10% of whatever you produce, that's what was required in the old law. The new reveals the spirit behind that. Make a living sacrifice of yourself. That doesn't mean the tithe no longer applies. It means you don't stop there. You you don't just give 10% according to the letter of the law and think that you have honored God if you are resentful about it or or think that you are worshiping God while holding on to the other 90% with a clenched fist. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Hear those last words again. Without neglecting the others. Without neglecting the tithe. Jesus says, It's not enough to tithe if you are neglecting mercy and justice, but he doesn't say, therefore, don't bother tithing. He says, don't neglect either. 
Pay attention to all the things that matter to God. Do everything you can to honor God, including the tithe, but also justice and mercy and faithfulness and so much more. This is spiritual worship, holy and pleasing to God. When we honor him in every way we can. This is worship that continues to be an aroma pleasing unto the Lord. In a moment, I'm going to invite you, if you wish, to bring your pledge card to the front, place it in one of the boxes up here on the altar. Boxes are there, so you can place your card in it without fear of others seeing what you have written there. When I, when I open up the altar, you're not going to be directed by the ushers. You can, you can come whenever you feel ready, or you can not come if you don't want to. What we have written on the cards represent our intentions and our commitments to God, committing our prayers to God for one another and for his church, because we know the church cannot stand apart from prayer, committing to God our presence to be with the gathered community as a source of encouragement and strength, <laughs> committing our service to God, knowing that we have all been gifted by the Spirit with, in different ways, but for the good of the whole, committing our witness, knowing that the way that we live our lives, the things we do and say, are a reflection of the God we seek to honor. And we place before the Lord our financial commitments, knowing that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Knowing that it is up to the Lord to bless these commitments and to allow us to carry them out. Knowing that he will pour out his blessings upon us when we are faithful to his call. This is an invitation. I don't want anyone to feel obligated to come forward to please me or anyone around you. Come only if you feel it will be pleasing to God. That is what worship is about. Coming to the altar, even though it's done in a public setting is a very personal encounter. The altar represents the place where heaven and earth meet, where God and human meet. When we come to the altar, that which we commit to the Lord, we are leaving there in his hands and trusting him with it and not anyone else. We know that God is everywhere. The Holy Spirit is with each one of us. If you already made your commitment online, thank you for that. If you've already made your commitment in your heart, I rejoice in that as well. If you want to make your commitment sitting where you are now without coming forward, I commend you for your faithfulness. In whatever manner or, or through what means you make your commitment is between you and God. Please hear me on this. If you are sitting there worrying about who's coming up and who isn't, then you are sitting there in sin. Let this be a time for us to come to the altar of the Lord, wherever that altar may be for us, to meet God, to place our commitments before him, to trust him with them, to honor him, to show that he alone is worthy. And trust that in doing that, we will create an aroma pleasing <coughs> unto the Lord. The altar is open. Come as you feel led by the Spirit.